It's been about seven years, and that is extraordinary. It's still extraordinary. For our family, this is an incredible day for us because this is home. I am the man I am today. I am the minister that I am today because of this church, because of you people. Your extraordinary staff team, your pastor, Steve and this choir have helped to form and forge my wife. And it's incredible for us to be here to be able to show Ella the place where God really took us from these college students and began to shape us into what we get to experience every day where we, where we call home, just right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And for the college students who are here, I sat there, and I would encourage you, lean in to the years that you have here, because there are miracles waiting. There are things that God desires to do you in you, through you, that when I first walked in this room, I never imagined would happen. And so I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for you, thankful for your generosity and how you allowed us to get started in one of the most unchurched areas. And today, I want to give you a little bit of a fruit of the seed that was started in this place inside of my heart almost 10 years ago. It starts with an Australian police log, like most great stories do. Outside of Sydney, the police received a phone call that there was loud screams, a man declaring, I'm going to kill you, furniture being thrown. And as the police arrive at the house and begin to pound on the door, a man comes to the door out of breath and completely frazzled and flushed. And the officer says, sir, where's your wife? And the man says, I don't have one. He says, well, where's your girlfriend? I don't have one of those either. He says, look, sir, we, we heard the report. We heard the screams. Come on, mate. Where is she? And the guy takes a step back and a little sheepishly says, um, it was a spider. <laughs> and the, the officer's like, I, well, what about the woman screaming? Yeah, that was me. It was a really large, large spider. And I really, really hate spiders. And so the officers went in, and sure enough, the only... Um, things that had been damaged besides the furniture that had been thrown was the spider carcass laying in the corner of the floor. Now, many of us may not ever know what it's like to have the police called on us because of our fear, but I imagine that there's many of us today, whether you're in this room or you're sitting in your living room, that know what it, knows what it's like to be a prisoner of your fear. Whether it's the prisoner of fear and a, a, a midterm that's approaching, whether it's the prisoner of fear tied to your finances or to your relationships or your personal professional life, we all know what it's like to live in a prison that we've made called fear. And today, I want to take you on a journey to an extraordinary passage, one of those iconic New Testament moments. And in that moment, I want to look at how you and I can be introduced to a choice that can transform and set us free from the prison of fear. That can move us from a place of freedom. That moves us into that place of freedom. Where fear has kept us enslaved for so long. That passage is found in Matthew. And Matthew is the first book in the opening volume of the New Testament. And Matthew, it's helpful to know, was essentially the Roman equivalent of an IRS agent. Which wasn't liked very much back then either. Matthew had an attention to detail. He was a very thorough accountant. He was also Jewish in his upbringing, which means that he had a little bit of a deeper understanding of all the promises that Jesus had come to fulfill. 
And Matthew's attention to detail, Matthew's desire to follow Jesus would set the course of his life that would ultimately result in a book that we now have today called the book of Matthew. And in his 14th chapter, Matthew lays out for us with an attention to detail that only an accountant would have. We see a storyline unfold with Jesus doing the miraculous, inviting Peter to join him in the process. It begins in verse 22. Matthew 14, 22 starts with, Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they they screamed, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now this is a story that, no doubt, if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with how this story ends. But the challenge is that sometimes familiarity can actually lead to blindness. Familiarity can cause us to skip over it because, oh, I know what happens, I know this story. And it can cause us to miss some of the most significant things in Scripture. And this story is one of those. You see, to set the backdrop so that you fully understand what's been going on, Matthew, with his attention to detail, puts words in the Greek that would have communicated to something back then that we, we've kind of translated into English and have translated to words like when he says, after they've gone a long distance from land. Well, that's actually, Matthew writes the number. It's 30 stadia. Now, the Sea of Galilee was 60 stadia. And so they're about halfway across the Sea of Galilee, about 3.41 miles, if you convert 30 stadia into our miles. They've been traveling, based on Matthew's account, the fourth watch, they've been traveling for about nine hours, which for those mathematicians equals roughly 0.3788 miles per hour. Or, if you've ever been to riverbanks, the speed of the giant tortoise. (laughs) Imagine, nine hours sleep-deprived, exhausted, rowing with all your strength for nine hours at the speed of a giant tortoise. Now, the fourth watch is that point in the night where the sun is about to peek over the horizon. Before the sun breaks the horizon, what happens is the sky begins to brighten up and lighten up, and it's with that bright backdrop that they notice the figure walking on water, a figure that should not be there. Because if you're a fisherman, you know one thing, people don't walk on water. And so they assume it's a ghost. And in their culture, in their time, that superstitious ghost was an omen that meant you were about to die. Which is why they scream out. And this is the backdrop for this moment. Which is why in verse 27 what happens is so important. Jesus responds in verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. This verse is where we'll spend the majority of our time. Because in this verse, this verse shows us how to escape from the prison that our fear traps us in. First of all, when you think of the word courage, which is what Jesus says, take courage. Maybe for some of you what pops in the mind is the cowardly lion. Right, that iconic figure, that curly hair mane. 
And for many of us, this idea of courage is about as mysterious and magical as it was for the cowardly lion. It's something that you have to get from someone. It's some magical thing that you unlocked. Or maybe it's reserved for those small, special elite of us in the audience or join us online who give their lives in sacrificing for our country or who are first responders. Those people, they have that magical gene of courage. But this is not what Jesus is saying in this passage. This is not what Jesus commands to them in this passage. He actually says, take courage. This is a command. Now, you can't command fear. Fear is an emotional response to your circumstances. But you can command courage because Jesus understands that courage fundamentally is a choice. It's something that you and I have the power to access. Whereas fear is an emotional response to our circumstances, courage is a choice we make in spite of our circumstances. This is why Jesus commands it. Take courage. But where do you find strength for that courage? Where do you find access to to grab hold and pull that courage into those fear moments of life? And again, verse 27 lays out the two distinct elements, these two distinct wells where you and I can draw the strength to make that courage choice. The first is a focus on God's past faithfulness. It's the perspective. I love it. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus. Think about it. The, right before this moment is one of the most famous moments in all the New Testament letters. There is only one miracle that is recorded in all four letters of the gospel. Only one miracle outside of the resurrection. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. This is what immediately they are fleeing from when it says Jesus puts them into a boat and says it's time to get away. This is the moment that they're moving away from. So the last time they saw the face of Jesus, they had seen him at the feeding of the 5,000. And I think this is an important thing. Because what was in the boat, if you remember from that story, or if you just flip back and read it, is that after the miracle, there were 12 baskets of leftovers or carryout. And Jesus had each one take it. And in that boat, as they had spent nine hours rowing, what would have happened is the baskets would have slid back and forth, back and forth. The constant bump of those baskets was meant to be a reminder for them. Now, I think we can make the same mistake that the disciples make. We can miss how truly monumental that miracle was. That when Matthew, the accountant, records the 5,000, he's doing it very much in line with tradition at the time, which was to count based on the number of men. And like any good auditor, he knows how many people are there. He says 5,000, 5,000 men. It's not counting the women and the children which means there's probably excess of 25,000 people present at that miracle. Enough to fill the Colonial Life Arena and still have a a waiting line of 7,000 outside. But even that's not truly extraordinary. I think where it starts to get extraordinary is when you start to imagine how much food it would take to have that many people over for Thanksgiving. When you start to do the math, it's a six-figure number to provide that much food. First of all, it would have taken almost 4,000 loaves of barley bread, 
which John records for us is what type of bread that they have there. And on top of the 4,000 loaves of barley, the number of fish, to really kind of capture it, I went by the grocery store and grabbed a can of Starkist. It wasn't tuna, it was tilapia, but if you bear with me, I think this will help you understand the true size of this miracle. Now, if you took this can and you loaded it with the amount of fish that would have taken to feed those 25,000 people, you would have almost 38,000 cans of tuna or tilapia. Now, because I like math, I decided to figure out how tall it would be if you stacked them all top of each other. I did go to the University of South Carolina and learn some things there, right? <laughs> and so advanced math is something I comfortably do. And when you stack all of these cans on top of each other, it is almost 4,000 feet tall, which is to take the tallest building in Columbia, the Capitol building, and to stack at the corner of Assembly and Trevay, stack 11 of them on top of each other. And that's the amount of fish it would have taken to feed 25,000 people. You see, I believe the disciples had forgotten in the darkness what God had already done in the light. That day, this isn't weeks, this is hours have gone by since they've watched the miracle occur. And they had forgotten in the darkness what God had done in the light. They had lost perspective. They had missed it. And it's something that, quite honestly, you and I can easily fall into that same tra trap. We can fall into the trap of griping, complaining, and missing all the leftover miracles in our lives. We can start to take for granted all the carryouts of God's faithfulness sitting around us. And like the disciples, we can stop hearing the bouncing baskets back and forth that are a constant reminder to us that God is faithful. And that perhaps the faith that you need in your present moment, he has already deposited in his past faithfulness for you. And that his past faithful moment could be the very source of strength that you need to have movement in the, that area of your life where you're currently trapped. But this isn't the only source of strength that we see. Jesus says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Again, Jesus is reminding him. It's not just, hey, remember me? I was the guy that did the miracle. He's also saying to them with a very, remember Matthew's an accountant, attention to detail. He records in the Greek, but Jesus wouldn't have said it in the Greek. What Jesus says when he says, it is I, is the Greek equivalent of that great and ancient name that God would have said to Moses, the I am. And so when Jesus, walking on the water, and they cry out and Jesus says, take courage, he says, I am. The I am is here. Not the I was or the I have been, but the I am. And again, it's something that you and I can easily miss. I have a seven-year-old named Ella. And, and what marvels me about her is how intuitively some of the things that are really difficult for me to grasp, how intuitively she gets them. A couple months ago, we were reading um, a book. At, we read a book every single night, and we were, happened to be in this series of books. And the character was, was kind of bringing home different types of, like, creepy crawlies. And so I was in the kitchen, and I hear 
um, kind of through the walls, Daddy! And I walk into the bedroom, my wife's reading, and she's like, Daddy, Mommy's about to read the chapter with the snakes. Will you lay down with me? And I crawled into the bed, and she took my arm, and she threw it around her little body and pulled me close. And she said, okay, Mommy, you can read now. And once we were done, she was like, okay, Daddy, you can leave now. <laughs> the next night, I'm in the kitchen cleaning, and I hear, Daddy! And I walk back in, I'm like, yes, pumpkin. And she's like, there's spiders in this chapter. Will you lay down with me again? And of course, I do. And I said, sweetheart, do I make you brave? Because I just felt her, kind of felt her body just kind of relax a little bit. I was like, do I make you brave? And she's like, yeah, you do. You make me strong. And I think sometimes my seven-year-old understands this principle better than I am, that when you understand the who that is with you, it doesn't matter what the what it is that you're going through. That when you have the who that is with you figured out, the what is very much a secondary factor. This is what Jesus was saying. He's saying, look, the who that is with you is bigger than the what that you're going through right now. It's greater than what you're walking through. It's greater than what you're boating through. Because the who is bigger than the what, no matter what it is that you're going through. Especially when that who is Jesus, the I am. And this is what he begins to lay out for him, which is no surprise. Because when you ask yourself that question, what would I do if I knew he was for me and with me? How would that change me? I think what you would find is you would have the courage, like my daughter did, to say, go ahead, Mommy, keep reading. That you want to lean into life and to step out in courage. And this is exactly what we see Peter do, right? In the, the, the moments that we are all familiar with that follows, where Peter says, okay, Jesus, if it's you, call me, and I'll come. And then Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out. I think it's because Peter had recognized the who is greater than the what, that the I am was present, that he had the courage to try it, and that what happens in those responses is that you do find the courage to try, to trust, to tell, to step out. Peter makes that choice of courage, and Peter, in a moment, does what no respectable fisherman had ever imagined minutes before. He had grown up around this lake. He knew intimately all the various bays and depths of this lake, but he never once imagined as a fisherman that he would walk on the water. He just knew how to boat on that water. He never imagined that he would be the only other person in human history who would know what it's like to walk on water. Because I'm imagining that many of you, like me, when no one else is around, when you get to the pool, you try to test it out just to see if maybe you've got the stuff. I've tried. It's never worked for me. And for the rest of Peter's life, this was probably the thing that he went back to. They're like, uh, Peter, welcome to the group. Glad you're here today. Could you share maybe something interesting about you? Oh, uh, yeah, my name is Peter. I've walked on water. Anyone else? Oh, no one else. Oh, okay, that's just me. And, and God. All right. Yeah. Like, I mean, imagine the swagger that comes when you know you're the only other person in human history who walked on water. This is what Peter has for the rest of his life. 
And what preceded that monumental, unimaginable moment? What preceded it was courage. It was a choice to walk from fear to faith. And what I've found in my own journey, in our own family's journey, even into this place called Boston, Massachusetts, is that courage precedes the change oftentimes that we're praying for. That courage is that preceding moment before God's movement in the miraculous. When we choose to step out in faith. When we chose to uproot our lives and move a thousand miles to a place that we'd never lived before when six other families uprooted their lives and moved with us. To start in an area in a region with less than 2% evangelical, where there was no thriving evangelical church preaching the gospel anywhere nearby. And the moment that we opened our doors to be the largest church in our area. And to see God move and work. And not only in our challenges and opportunities because what we found is that courage is often that thing that precedes that obstacle becoming that opportunity that problem starting to be viewed through the lens of possibility for us to see a setback turn into a setup of God's spirit working and moving not just in our lives but in other lives too just recently a lady who'd started coming to encounter church she was unpacking her story when she was seven years old her father was murdered as a Boston police detective And when she was seven years old, she decided, I don't want to have anything to do with a God who would do that. And for the next almost 25 years, she lived her life completely in any type of rebellion to any idea that that God would be real. And one day we were talking, and she she looked at me after we had watched him start to do some things, and she said, I got a question for you. Is it possible to love God? I said, yeah. She's like, because I think that's what I feel on the inside for him. And that night, she gets down on her knees and says to the God of heaven and earth, God, if losing my earthly father was what it took for you to become my heavenly father, then it was worth it. And that's just one of dozens of stories of transforming hope that God is breathing in to our community. Of people taking choices of courage, taking steps of faith, And no longer being trapped by fear and grief and griping, complaining and the prisons that we make ourselves that we live in. And the same courage that has guided our lives, the same courage that transformed that lady's life is the same power that can transform your life too. The power for you to really step into something new. Because what would you do if you knew God was for you? What would you say? What would you try? Where would you begin to trust him if you believe that he not only knew you, but was for you and with you? What courage would you draw from that and what choice would you make? I imagine that many of us, if we grabbed hold of the fact that God was really for us, I think we would start dreaming differently about our lives. We would start to imagine what our marriage could look like. We'd start to imagine what parents, what parenting could look like or grandparenting. We'd start to reimagine what our career could look like, what our personal lives, those addictions and struggles that keep us enslaved, the power, that possibility that those could be broken and those bonds could be released. If we really understood that God was for us, I think that things would start to happen grand and small. The people 
pleaser would find the courage to say no. For some of you, you would find the courage to stop just sitting, but to step up and start serving or to start giving and entrusting your resources that God wants to do something, not just here, but even where I live through your faithfulness. That we'd start writing off, we would stop writing excuses and writing off reasons why I can't be honest with myself. I can't take that step with career choice. I can't move into that area. And we'd stop playing it safe with our faith. We would find the courage to be brutally honest about the sins in our lives, about the ways of our selfishness has destroyed and is destroying our lives. And we would start to step into new unimaginable and amazing places. And it all happens with the first choice of courage. That when you and I are willing to make that courage choice, what we will find is that we don't have to be like the 11 other disciples that stayed in the boat. Think about how tragic that moment was. I mean, if there was ever any regret, that would be it. Peter gets back in the boat and he's like, Boys, you should have tried it. It was incredible. I know I started sinking, but did you see me walking? I mean, it's extraordinary. And all of them were like, we missed it. We missed our moment. Because the only moment you have is today. You're not promised tomorrow. You have right now. And the choice, the life that you want to see played out will only happen if you step out in courage. That the miraculous moment that you pray for, that you desire to see start to transform you, is just on the other side of your courageous choice. Because if you never get out of the boat, you never walk on the water. And what I've found in life is that if you keep doing the same thing, you keep getting the same thing, and then you die. That's the brutal reality. And we have a choice today. We can choose, like Peter, and all of his imperfections and all of his humanity, to make a courage choice to step out, to take that step of faith today. Whether it's coming down to give and to be honest and to confess and say, God, I want you to step into my lives. I'm so sorry. I want to return to my childhood faith. Or whether it's a choice to come down and ask for somebody to pray for you and say, look, this is where I desire to see God move. I need someone with courage to lean in with me and believe with me that God can transform my marriage, that God can save my child, that God can do something in me personally or professionally. Because we're all in that boat right now. And the choice is, will you choose courage today? Will you step out and believe that God is able to do extraordinary? The God who raises dead things back to life is still in business today. He still is able to bring dead things back to life. Even if that dead thing is your marriage, even if that dead thing is your wayward son or daughter, even if that dead thing is the dreams and the hopes living inside of you that you've already had a funeral for, that that God is still about calling out dead things from the grave. He's still the God of the resurrection. And today, resurrection can happen in your life and in my life too. But the question is, Will we choose courage today? Will we take a step back 
look back to the past faithfulness of God in our lives and to look at the presence of God in our lives today and to draw from those two things the strength that we need to make our courageous choice. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that while fear may whisper to stay in our status quo, you call out for us to experience a rich spiritual life. Thank you that we don't have to be controlled by our circumstances, but that you, Holy Spirit, even right now, can begin to take control of us and move in our circumstances. So Father, whatever that choice is today, may you give us the courage to make it. May you give us the wisdom, the remembrance, and the recognition that you're present in our life, even right now. Thank you for hope. Thank you for amazing grace. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. We come to that moment where, even in the midst of this message, where we get to make that choice. And maybe for you, it's as our choir is singing and as you begin to stand that in just your spot right now, you step out of that boat. And just in your heart, say, God, I need you to move. I need you to work. Maybe it's on the couch right now as you're listening in. Or maybe for some of you, what you need to do is to come down and staff will be present waiting on you. And just uh, to offer up your hopes and your prayers and allow them to pray for you and to engage with you in your exciting step today. So whatever it is, let's stand. As the choir sings, let's respond. Jenny Christ.